This week marks the second anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. More broadly, recent years have underlined the degree to which events outside of our borders impact on our lives within them. From the impact of the Ukraine war on the cost of living, to COVID, to the way the awful conflict in Gaza is resonating in our politics, to real concerns about the implications of the US election, it's harder than ever to separate what happens in our country from what's going on outside it. So how prepared is the UK to confront the challenges of what feels like an increasingly unstable world? Do we provide adequate resources to pursue the kinds of foreign and defence policies we need and want? Should we be working more closely with the EU than we are? These are among the questions that we're going to try and address today. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. And I'm Arnon Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe. And this is The Expert Fact. There's quite a lot going on in the outside world which is really impacting on us. And nothing has impacted on us more, I think, over the last couple of years than the Russia-Ukraine war, particularly in terms of its impact on cost of living. But clearly it has more serious implications than that for Ukraine and for the wider global situation. So, Anand, can we start with you? We're two years on from the war. As far as one can see, we're at a degree of stalemate, or at least Russia and Ukraine are. How do you see the war progressing? Are we anywhere near any kind of conclusion, or is this going to be something rumbling in the background, at least as far as we're concerned, for some considerable time to come? I mean, interestingly enough, I think the answer to that question lies not in Ukraine itself, but in chancelleries across the West. Because ultimately, how this war progresses is going to depend fundamentally on the numbers and the kinds of weapons we are willing to supply to Ukraine. I mean, just if you like to illustrate what you were saying in your introduction, all these things are bound up. How Ukraine is doing in the war is very bound up with the internal politics of the US Congress at the moment and whether they'll vote through the necessary credits. So I think Europe and the United States have a choice to make here, which is how ambitious do we want to be? How much modern weaponry of the kind that Ukraine needs to turn this war around are we willing to send? Because at the moment, we're sending just enough to make this, as you said, something of a stalemate. And what about the UK's role in all of that? Have we been leaders in providing help to the Ukraine? Have we essentially done what the rest of the EU has been doing? Have we made any use of the fact that we're outside of the EU in responding to this? I think we have every right to be proud of our response to Ukraine. I mean, well before the current crisis, we were training Ukrainian troops. After the 2014 crisis, we started to do that. And during the current conflict, we've been slightly ahead of the curve in terms of coming down strongly in favour of Ukraine, in terms of trying to persuade European friends and allies to do more in the way of sending weapons. So, you know, yes, we've done well. It's not enough on our own. I mean, the European Union is sending the most in terms of economic support to Ukraine at the moment by a considerable margin. But when you ask for the question about Brexit, I don't think we're making use of any legal Brexit freedoms. We're not doing anything I don't think that we couldn't have done as a member state of the European Union. But I do think and it's very, very hard to provide evidence for this, sadly. I mean, I have had the sense since Brexit that our foreign policy has been more activist and more, if you like, noisy 
as part of an attempt to illustrate the fact that leaving the European Union wasn't the UK turning its back on the world. So I think Brexit provided a political incentives for our leaders to take a leading role in this crisis, which might not have been the case were we still in the European Union. I think that's right. And I think if we look back to Boris Johnson's government, he was really at the forefront of, of wanting to show that the UK was going to be Zelensky's biggest ally. And I think at the time, the UK was, in a sense, sort of pushing the response from the EU in a way. But that is absolutely not something that wouldn't have been possible if Brexit hadn't happened. The fact that the UK has a relatively large military compared to many EU countries and sophisticated intelligence and so on, that is always a role we've played within Europe. So I think you're right that the political cast that's been put on it might have something to do with the politics of Brexit, but it's not necessarily anything different to what we would have done had this happened and we'd still been a member of the EU. And can we get a sense of scale here? I mean, I'm always, of course, focused on the money. How much are we spending on sending weapons or other kinds of help to Ukraine? Yeah, so since the war started, since February 2022, the UK's committed £12 billion to Ukraine, of which just over £7 billion is in terms of military support. And that, I mean, that doesn't compare badly when you look at what the EU has committed itself. That's around £75 billion pounds, uh, to, to compare it directly. But that's across all financial, military, refugee type support, humanitarian support. So the figures are not insubstantial. And obviously, we'll probably come on to talk about military budgets and NATO and percentages that different countries are, are spending on defence. But you're fighting a war like this in the modern day does not come cheap. And it's a real question which is going to face whoever forms the next government how much we want to invest in our armed forces. And I think we can already see if we look at some of the briefing and some of the messages which are starting to come from the defence world, the military complex is kind of limbering up for the next spending review. We've had sort of some of those messages already starting to come about how important it is that we continue to invest in our military. It's worth just adding, that's quite a hard set of decisions, even assuming the United States continues to contribute. And that's not a given. No, indeed. A Trump presidency could change a lot of that and make those choices even more acute than they already are. But Anand, in terms of the current situation in the US, the bill which is trying to get through Congress in order to free up the next sort of tranche of, of money, which has been held up by all sorts of other political considerations, is that now looking more likely to pass or is it still a real, really stuck? The debate there seems very similar to some of those debates that we had in the UK Parliament during Brexit about finding procedural wheezes to get this money approved. At the moment, the partisan deadlock has meant that this is stuck. And one of the most remarkable things I've seen in recent times was the amount of invective levelled at Congress from the Munich Security Conference really was quite remarkable. Well, that's a nice segue, actually, into the sort of broader issues around instability and what it means for UK government and politics. I mean, it's actually, it's worth just focusing a moment on that £12 billion number that Hannah quoted, just to put some scale on that. That really is a pretty substantial amount, and certainly relative to the overall Ministry of Defence budget, it's over several years and it's not all going to come from their central budget by any means, but that is a noticeable increase in funding on defence-related issues, should we say, by the British government. But coming on to this issue about the US and what a Trump presidency might mean. 
One thing I think is sort of, as it were, understandable from the US or indeed the Trump point of view is this irritation at the role that the US plays, the outsized role, even given how rich and big the US is, the outsized role that it plays in European security and the degree to which it supported Ukraine. And as we've heard, the frustration that a number of NATO countries aren't even meeting 2% of national income on defence, whereas the US, I think, is something like double that. To what extent is that a bipartisan frustration in the US, or to what extent is this very much a sort of Trump-led issue? Oh, it's bipartisan. And American frustration over the issue that's been called burden-sharing, I mean, dates back to the early 1970s, actually, when the United States were complaining at the Europeans for not carrying their own weight. I think Trump brings his own particular style to this. That's a lovely word that I get. And, you know, it would appear, I mean, very hard to tease these things apart, isn't it? We had Trump and we had a slight increase in European defence spending at the time of the first Trump presidency. But the thing about Trump is quite often what he says has a kernel of truth to it. And I think in this case, there is absolutely no doubt that Europeans have effectively been free riders on American defence spending. And there are two reasons for that, I think. I mean, it's partly, as you say, Europeans don't spend very much, but it's also the fact that Europeans spend very badly. One of the problems with Europe is you have duplication and fragmentation across national defence systems. So, you know, there are, you always see in the studies of defence corporation the number of different ground-to-air missile systems currently in development in Europe. Whereas rationally, you know, in a rational world, a rational economic world, you'd say, okay, let's pool some of those resources and just build one system between us. But of course, that runs into all those issues of sovereignty, of the need to protect national defense industries. So Europeans find it very, very hard to overcome those inefficiencies that are built into a market of, of 27 member states inside the European Union. But to what extent, if there is a Trump presidency, is that going to change things? I mean, he's been talking, Donald Trump has been talking recently about, I mean, making remarkable statements about not coming to the aid of NATO members that aren't spending their 2% commitments. That's quite strong rhetoric in the context of what's happening in Ukraine and the nervousness that some other nations are feeling. How big a difference will this make to the EU? How much of a difference will it make to the UK? Well, it's worse even than that, in the sense that Trump at one point was saying he'd encourage the Russians to attack allies who weren't pulling their weight. So it wasn't just not defending. What difference it will well, I mean, there's a there's a negative, there's a sort of there's a pessimistic argument, which is it's too late. You know, given lead times in defense weapons system procurement, we should have started this 10 years before. There is no way. Imagine the worst case scenario where Trump says, Right, we're not going to be involved in Ukraine anymore. And right, actually, Article 5 of the NATO treaty, I will not honour it. So if one of our allies is attacked, the United States will not come to their defence, which is the worst case scenario for Europe. Europe can't just say now, OK, we'll get ready for a Trump presidency, because we're dealing with years and years and years of inefficient and insufficient spending. The European Union has started taking steps, but in best European Union tradition, a lot of them are organizational rather than substantive. There's discussion about having a, a European commissioner for defense. The, the Europeans are about to publish a defense industrial strategy. So the European Union has moved. There's no way it's moved enough to fill an American-shaped hole in European security. And if you just think back, you know, just over 10 years ago to the war in Libya, 
President Obama very famously spoke about leading from behind, but the Europeans simply would not have been able to defeat the Libyan military as quickly and efficiently as they did without massive amounts of American support. And that tells you something about the state of readiness of European armed forces and the degree to which we have a whole load of catching up to do before we can even think seriously about defending ourselves or defending the member states of NATO against aggression. That's a very striking way of putting it, and I think an indication of the extent to which we have been riding on the American coattails for a long period of time. But Hannah, if we go beyond the sort of security situation and whether there would be other consequences of a Trump presidency for politics in the UK or indeed for other aspects of what happens in the UK. One hears a lot of discussion, rhetoric about how a second Trump presidency might be different from a first. But in the end, how much is that actually going to matter to us? I think that's a really interesting and important question to ask. And you're right that you know there is discussion of whether Donald Trump coming into power for a second time would be much more efficient in the things that he would want to change about government because he just would have a much better appreciation second time around of how it is currently working and therefore what he would want to do differently. I think there are some potential impacts on UK politics. I mean, I think in the run into the election, which is presumably going to happen sometime later this year, the parties will continue to be asked you know, about the prospect of a, of a Trump presidency and how they would relate to a potential President Trump. Previous prime ministers have, have dealt with that. Theresa May went over to meet him and so on, and presumably the government machine will deal with that. I think possibly the more interesting question is the effect that Trump as a politician and Trumpian techniques and so on may have on our political parties. And I think it's quite interesting to note how many conservative politicians have, particularly those not currently in government, have been making their way over the Atlantic to immerse themselves in different, relatively right-wing, some very Trump-aligned organizations and discussions over there. We saw Liz Truss spending quite a lot of her time over there. We've just seen Robert Jenrick go over. So I think there's a question about how the right-wing politics and the particular populist politics that Trump espouses may have an influence on the approach which our politicians decide to take to doing politics and the techniques that they see working over there, potentially for Trump, that they might want to try out over here. So that's, I think, the interesting thing to watch. Though I can't help thinking, I mean, if you look at the opinion polling, there's a very, very small slice of British public opinion that appears Trumpian in, in any real sense. So I can't help thinking that a lot of these conservative politicians are thinking about a slightly different electorate, i.e. not the British electorate, but the membership of the Conservative Party. So it's a, it's a far narrower ambition, is, is, is my hunch. I think if you went full on Trump, you're not going to find much residence with the British public at the moment. So I, I do wonder whether this isn't exacerbated by the fact that many people in the Conservative Party are actually thinking about the next election, not the general election. Or indeed thinking even further ahead to the next leadership election of the Conservative Party, but also where they might want to take the Conservative Party thereafter and thinking ahead to subsequent elections later in the 2020s and 2030s. Possibly, yeah. I mean, my, my hunch is that 
if you want to win those elections, you probably need to be significantly nearer the centre than that implies, but who knows? Well, we know what um, political parties tend to do after big losses, and they don't tend to migrate swiftly to the centre, do they? As they say, the only thing anyone ever learns from history is they, and so on. I mean, obviously, there are the potential domestic consequences for British politics of a Trump presidency. And we've talked about the defence issues. But I, I guess the other set of issues that might have international resonance is where he ends up on trade and whether uh, we are in for a long period of global free trade being in some form of retreat. There were some aspects of that under the last Trump presidency. In a sense, see some aspects of that in terms of the UK withdrawing from the single market and customs union with the EU. There are clearly broader movements against global free trade in the West. Is this something that we might see as a, a bit of a theme in terms of the changing place role of the UK and the global world order for the foreseeable future? Yes. And I, I, mean, I think there are lots of different things going on here. There's the impact of COVID, the emphasis on reshoring, the priority to securing supply chains and things like that. So that is a global trend post-COVID. I think the move against free trade in the United States is a pretty bipartisan one. Again, it finds its most sort of jarring expression in the form of Donald Trump. But the D Democrats have been moving pretty much in this direction as well. And actually, when it comes to Brexit Britain, the curiosity, I think, is that in a sense, if you go back to those original Brexit visions about the buccaneering, free trading Britain we were going to create when we were free of the shackles of the European Union, that was predicated on a very different kind of world to the world we're living in now. It's predicated on a world in which the World Trade Organization functioned, which it no longer does. It was premised on a world in which globalization was flourishing. It was premised on a world in which the world's largest economies, and particularly the US and the EU, remained open. And of course, both those economies have become increasingly closed and increasingly turning in on themselves. So the paradox is that even though you can see Brexit as protectionist in terms of how we interact with the European marketplace, it was premised on a vision of an open, buccaneering, free-trading world that no longer really exists. So it's a, it's, a, it's a bad moment for us to be doing what we're doing, I think, in that sense. Well, let's not go into some of the internal contradictions of sort of where the different parts of the coalition supporting Brexit were coming from. We could spend a long time talking about international trade, and maybe that will be for another edition of the expert factor. But um, clearly, the you know the biggest immediate issue facing the international political order, wider stability, and its impact on UK politics is what's happening in Israel and Gaza at the moment. We've seen some. Remarkable internal problems in the Labour Party. We've seen very large numbers of people taking to the streets in the UK. We've seen a very big increase in anti-Semitic incidents since the awful events of the 7th of October. Focusing rather parochially, this dreadful situation in Israel and Gaza, to what extent is that having real domestic consequences for our politics. I, mean, I think this is a good example of one of those unforeseen events which can end up having quite an outsized impact 
on an election, you know, before the 7th of October last year, we wouldn't have anticipated anti-Semitism within the Labour Party coming back necessarily as a, as a major issue in advance of the election. And yet it is now as a consequence, as you, as you say, Paul, you know, parochially, and obviously the massive loss of life in Gaza is much more significant in many ways. But for UK politics, that issue has come racing back up the agenda and has done so because it is the issue, one of the issues which Keir Starmer had chosen to define himself against his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn, on to say that he had sorted out these issues within the Labour Party that had really been a problem for many people thinking about voting for, for Jeremy Corbyn. So I think it has been, I mean, for me, quite alarming, actually, to watch how fragile, in a sense, the sort of social fabric of our country is in terms of how rapidly that increase in anti-Semitism has happened. You know, I think it's it's unsurprising that we've had the the major sort of street protests and, and so on. And this is something where there are real concerns for the different communities within the UK and for the wider for the wider UK public. But I think it is something which is quite salutary for us all to to sort of think about in terms of we can we can get a bit sort of blasé about thinking that you know we live in a stable tolerant society and actually quite quickly something which is happening quite a long distance away can have a big destabilizing effect and reveal that actually we're not as stable and tolerant as we might think we are i mean gaza underlies what we were talking about before which is just how dependent we are on the united states in the sense that it is becoming pretty damn clear that the only country that can exercise any sort of restraining influence on Israel is the US. And essentially, you know, for all the declarations by the European Union or statements by David Cameron, ultimately the United States have the ability to put real pressure on Israel. But do they? I mean, that's the, I think that's really interesting because it seems to me that Netanyahu has a lot to lose in this context. And I, I'm not sure whether at the end of the day... I mean, does he still really care what the, what the US is saying and doing on this? The evidence doesn't seem to be there to me. I think he wants the US cash and he wants the US military support. So I think whether or not the US is willing to pull either of those things or even threaten to is another question entirely. But yeah, there is a material dependence on the United States that is quite fundamental there for Israel. And without that full-throated backing of the United States, the, they would not be able to carry on the conflict as they are carrying it on now. So in that sense, at least... The U.S. has a leverage that other people lack. The other, the other interesting thing in a, in a broader context about the conflict, I suppose, is that the rest of the world is watching, and the perception from a lot of countries across the world that the, 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 the West is being biased in its handling of the crisis, that it is showing excessive patience towards what the Israelis are doing matters in a world of shifting alliances and shifting loyalties. And finally, on your points about domestic politics, Paul, it's quite interesting that, I mean, at the moment, you could you could make a plausible case that, yes, it's causing problems inside the Labour Party, but their, their poll lead is so big, and there are relatively few seats where there are sufficient numbers of Muslim voters to cause them problems, that in, in narrow electoral terms, it might not matter. But what we have been seeing for a while in the UK is the impact of international events on diaspora communities and their politics within the United Kingdom. So you see that very clearly with Muslim voters in the case of Gaza. You see it, interestingly enough, increasingly with Indian Hindu voters who are increasingly 
moving to voting conservative. We saw one of the interesting things in recent times is when we had that sort of violence in Leicester between Muslim and Hindu communities, that was very much egged on by a whole load of right-wing Hindu social media accounts in India. So there are those links between what happens in the wider world and what happens in our politics, albeit at the moment they're not massively impacting necessarily on electoral outcomes. I suspect they will become more important over time. Well, that is, um, that is fascinating. It's certainly rather like Hannah. I've been sort of horrified by you know, the extent to which some of these events abroad have revealed things about our own nation at the moment, and some of the incidents that we've seen have been quite shocking. Again, a limited amount of time to discuss this. Given that we've given ourselves the topic of the world this week, <laughs> and we've got quite a lot to cover um, in the last few minutes. Part of what we're talking about here is UK's foreign and defence policy. Now, this seems to be something which, outside of these big moments when we have discussions about what is our view on the a ceasefire in Gaza, how much we should be supporting Ukraine, there's generally speaking not a great deal of public debate about how much we spend on defence, what our foreign policy actually is. I suppose two questions to, 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 to the two of you. First is, can one encapsulate a sense of a foreign policy strategy that the UK is pursuing? And the second one is, does the British public care? On foreign policy strategy, what I would say is between the two major parties, there is broad consensus, except when it comes to how we deal with the European Union. I think across the piece, particularly on Ukraine, but also on Gaza and more broadly on China, there's not much to choose between the two big parties and their positions. So in that sense, there is a sort of political consensus, albeit not necessarily a very clear strategy. I mean, the strategy seems to be we will support Ukraine, clearly. The strategy at the moment, though it seems to be shifting a little bit, has been support for Israel, but now edging towards full-throated support for a ceasefire, though a ceasefire under other names at the moment. So in that sense, yeah, I mean, I think, no, foreign policy doesn't tend to matter in elections, and I suspect it will matter even less when there is broad consensus between the big two parties on it. So they're not arguing about foreign policy matters, which makes it even less likely, I think, that foreign policy is going to be a big political issue in the year ahead. That being said, I think one of the interesting things that's happened, partly because of COVID, partly because of debates about China, partly because of Gaza, partly because of Ukraine, is people have become more aware of the relationship between the stuff that happens here and the stuff that happens there, if you like, though not to the point where the stuff that's happening there and our strategy towards it should be a major electoral concern. Although on that one, I do think that in particular, what we've seen with the military engagement with the Houthis and the impact that that is the, the sort of instability affecting the shipping and the impact on supply chains and what we saw previously with the impact on supply chains leading to the the energy crisis, those are things which have a direct impact through into sort of cost of living and, and people's lives. So I think when those things happen, in particular geographical locations, Suez Canal, so on, those do have the, the potential to, to play into debates around the election, but more about what the domestic response is to those pressures rather than the question of whether the 
UK should have been uh, should have decided to bomb those Houthi rebels in Yemen or engage in in those sorts of ways. So it's less the military engagement itself that becomes the matter of debate. Although of course it can, and we only have to look back to to Tony Blair and the Iraq War, and then the public did care very much uh, about the UK's foreign policy. Yeah. I think more recently, we've had during the Brexit period this sort of idea floating around government of this idea of sort of global Britain, but that was never really properly, to my mind, articulated what that meant. It could mean anything depending on what day of the week it was and, and who you were talking to. And so I don't think there's a sense in which any citizen in the UK could reliably feel that they could quickly encapsulate what the UK's foreign policy is at the moment. Last year, the government produced something called the Refreshed Integrated Review, which was essentially an attempt to state a broad foreign policy, defence policy framework. I mean, how, how much does that help us to understand where the UK is? And, and indeed, how much could that be used as a way of helping the, the British public encapsulate what foreign policy is? I mean... I think it's a very sensible document, and I think the original Integrated Review was a very sensible document, actually, that laid out the major challenges we face, how we intend to try and address them, what the major areas of British activity in foreign affairs will be. The refresh, obviously, in the interim between the original document and the refresh, you had the invasion of Ukraine, so there was a more of a European focus to the second one than there had been to the first one. I think it's good that we have these documents and that they can inform thinking, because as I said before, Adapting foreign, particularly defence policy, is a task of years, not months. So you need to be looking to the future at all times. Whether you can engage the public in that sort of discussion, I'm a little bit sceptical about. I'm sceptical partly because it's hard enough getting the public engaged on directly political matters in an election. Hannah, what's your view, and in particular, um, of this speculation that the timing of our election relative to the one in the US may actually matter? I think in terms of timing, uh, we obviously had some concerns expressed by the chiefs of the, the Five Eyes intelligence services saying that they were worried about whether it would be possible to manage the risks of having several elections, the UK election and the US election happening in close proximity and, and the danger there being that most of the effort would go into managing the risks around potential foreign states trying to influence the US election and relatively less effort might go into the UK. But in terms of the actual impact on the outcome of the election, I think it's quite hard to say. I think we'll see quite a lot of quite tired political correspondence on the airwaves if they're attempting to cover both elections. Obviously, the US election is always a big subject of interest here in the UK. If Trump has just been re-elected and we're going into a UK election, I don't think that there's any sort of direct impact on either of the leaders of the parties here in terms of the implications for that. But it would just be more, I think, of a, of a distraction for people than something that's actually going to shape the outcome. Well, there you have it. The, 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 the big thing to worry about this year is some tired political correspondents who are going to have to cover <laughs> far too many um, far too many elections. I think we, uh, we really ought to take that into account much more often in, uh, in, in setting our election dates. <laughs> but seriously, a really serious set of issues that we've discussed today, each of which arguably we should be devoting entire episodes to what's happening in Ukraine, the role of the US in supporting the rest of the 
NATO alliance in um, standing up to Russia and in providing such huge fractions of the support to Ukraine. Also, the central role of the US in the Israel-Gaza conflict, but what that is itself told us about what's happening within our own country and the impact of things that are happening beyond our borders in terms of its impact on communities within this country, uh, our government actually unusually having a coherent strategy for this element of policy, but one that uh, a lot of our fellow citizens care relatively little about. And of course, all in the context of the ongoing budget pressures that the Ministry of Defence alongside the rest of the public sector is facing. So Hannah Anand, it's been fantastic as ever talking to you about um, something that you two know far more about than I do. So I have as ever learned a great deal. I hope the same is true of everyone else who's been listening to this episode. But in the meantime, it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from them. <laughs>